Hi there, my name is Meg. And my name is Adam. And this week we are on to the topic Georgian. You may remember from last week, um, Adam spoke at length about F1, carbon fiber, and all things road safety. And the word that he posed to me was Georgian. Mm -hmm. I'm super excited to talk about that. How about you? I'm very excited. And I'd like to say as well that as this is our seventh episode... We're now well over a quarter of the way through recording this series, which I think is an interesting milestone. Um, yeah. So I think that's exciting. It is super exciting. Now, before I start, I'm going to explain the rule of the games for any of our new listeners, and then we're going to share what we've been drinking, and then and then and then I'll get started. I'll get I'll get talking and sharing my fun ass title. How does? <laughs> I'm so drunk. <laughs> I'm I'm very drunk too. I'm already very drunk. What have you been drinking this week, my love? Well, I've been drinking a bunch of leftovers. <laughs> Sometimes I watch those videos where they're like, what are you eating? And it's like, I'm just eating like a lot of leftover. And it's just kind of a jimble jamble, shimble shamble, just a, just a lot of liquid. I'm not, I'm not feeling too good, to be honest. I'm, get, I'm getting drunk and I'm getting queasy. Alcoholic so liquid. I, yeah, exactly. So I'm finishing up that Sake Collins uh, beverage that I bought a couple weeks ago. I am drinking some uh, leftover beer and some whiskey. And it's as gross as it sounds. And I think, you know, as we've kind of reached what, like, like you said, the quarter of this first season, we're getting desperate here. It's it, every every week we talk about how unsustainable this podcast is and it's really starting to get to. What are you so, drinking? So I'm drinking uh, Bacardi rum today. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. drinking it neat. I have cut my first... Um, my first sort of two shots of it with ginger ale, Canada Dry again, which if you were listening to our podcast previously, you know that I've cut previously with my Spirit of York vodka. I am myself running out of things to actually drink, to be honest. I've 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 finished raiding predominantly all of our liquor cabinets. Now You need to go shopping for alcohol. I do That's need to go shopping to for alcohol, but I'm embarrassed to be seen shopping for alcohol alone, okay? Because I still have that you know British shame about drinking, right? About everything. Oh, about everything. <laughs> Adam yeah. doesn't like to go out in public alone. He doesn't like to go out in public period and be seen yeah, by others. <laughs> he doesn't make eye contact with anyone. I don't like human beings. No. I'm not a fan of humans. Um, I quite like animals sometimes. Oh, God. I it's kill one of those today. kinds of recording sessions. <laughs> so what I think a really interesting distinction is that here in Ontario, where I'm filming, um, there are certain grocery stores that you can get um, beer and wine. So kind of your like lower alcohol content to medium alcohol content beverages. Very few. So around me, there's not any of walking distance that I can actually um, go to in terms of groceries to get any any kind of alcohol. And um, definitely, you know, like hard liquors and stuff like that. You have to go to this place called the LCBO. And they are this kind of like a government sanctioned uh, place for you to get harder. Well, liquor. they're government owned, aren't they? Yeah, they are. No, they are. Right. So, so um, you know, alcohol I... sales are for government profit. Yes. That's not this kind of podcast. Anyways, I have to walk about an hour to get there. <laughs> and so every weekend, I, I'm like, you know, I need to, like, Adam always makes fun of me because technically I, I could drive 
But A, I don't really like cars that much. And B, I'm trying to like, you know, I'm trying to stay fit. You know, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like get out there and, and especially now that the weather is warmer, um, you know, get my steps in. So I go there, I walk, I pick up some alcohol for the week or for two weeks and then I, and then I come walking back. And meanwhile, Adam, I don't think you've made any specialized trips for this podcast. I have. No, for the sour, right? Sours. For the sours. Yeah, I bought the sours. Um. Only because I couldn't steal my sister's one because my mum said she'd castrate me. Mm. Well, there it is. So, you know, in any case, that's what we're drinking. I'm drinking an amalgamation of uh, low-grade alcohol that makes me feel like I'm in college again. And, <laughs> like, like freshman year. And Adam is drinking uh, rum. Spice rum. I didn't drink at all in my freshman year, so this is a welcome change. Yeah, this is a, uh, you're making up for lost time. I'm making up for lost time. Anyway, without further ado, do you want mm-hmm. to kick off your talk for us today? And yes, I do. you're obviously talking today about Georgian, which was the key yes. word that I gave you last yes. week. Yes, Georgian in quotations. Do you want to start mm-hmm. by telling us your title? Well, no, I'm actually going to start off by um, giving you, walking you down the garden path on how I came to decide upon this topic. Then I'm going to give you the title and then I'm going to dive into the history and my argument, okay? Let's see this garden. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to show you my rose bush. Okay, so as an English, you know, literature researcher, I'm at Columbia at the moment doing a PhD in um, like 18th century British literature and the health humanities. The word Georgian, it was very, very tempting, Um, you know, for anyone who has watched Bridgerton, anyone who's really into, you know, Jane Austen, for instance, you may know, you may have heard of like the Georgian, like period uh, in England, in in Britain, um, sort of the late 18th century, kind of um, early 19th century, right before the Victorian period. That was really, really tempting. Another kind of line related to literature that I, I wanted to kind of explore were um, was the topic Georgics. Adam, have you ever heard of the, the term Georgics? Georgics spelt J... No. Nope. <laughs> no, not J. <laughs> G-E-O-R-G-I-X. No, G-E-O-R-G-I-C-S. Georgics. Okay, Georgics. Okay. Yeah, whatever. It, it, it's actually a genre of poetry uh, dealing with agriculture and like rural um, mm. imagery. And that's because, Adam, do you know where the word slash merch comes from? The etymology? Hmm. Uh, let, me, let me try and deduce. Okay. So, George isn't a um, apostle's name. Okay. <laughs> It's not, is it? I, I don't think there was a George. I don't think there was a. I don't think there was an apostle named well, George. So, George. No, but he's not an apostle. Okay, fine. He's not yeah, so, this is true. That's like later on. Okay, yeah. And but but I was actually going to go down the Saint George route because obviously Saint George is the patron saint of England, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously famously slayed, or the myth goes, if you will, uh, famously slayed a dragon. You know, very very. Um, I feel like the plot of all of our patron saints could be made into Disney movies. And to an extent, have been made into Disney movies. To some extent, yeah. Um, but George, it feels Saxon. Okay. Um, to kind of speed things along, not so much, you know, the culture of the time period, but more so the. Mm-hmm. Go. I don't know. I. I I'm. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to forfeit. I tap well, out. It is related, you know, like dealing with agriculture. The etymology it comes. It, it means farmer, right? So that that's what. So, anyways. 
time period wise, right, like kind of in my own background, I was really tempted to talk about those two ideas, right, either the period or poetry. But I was like, I think that's a little too easy. Also, it might be a little too boring. Might be, I want something more niche, right? And so then I was like, what about place? There are two very well known places in the world named Georgia, one uh, in the United States, right, who's um, kind of biggest city Atlanta. I've been there before. I love I love Atlanta. I have lots of friends from Atlanta. Are we going to Tbilisi? Okay, well, the other topic is, of course, the Republic of Georgia, birthplace of Stalin, uh, kind of one of the birthplaces of wine. I also have a friend who did an archaeological dig in Tbilisi. Well, and not I follow, I yeah, follow a sex Georgia. therapist from there. Yeah, okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we'll it's our love life. Oh, okay. Uh, but then I was like, I feel like that's also a little too, right? Oh, like, no. Okay, so not time, not place. What about people? George Michael, Boy George. What if we talk about a number of well-known Georges, right? That could be fun. But then I was like, that seems like a lot of research, and I'm really tired. I'm nursing. I'm nursing a repetitive strain or injury. I don't really want to be dealing with that. So then I was like, what about animals? All right, <laughs> let me introduce to you the title of my presentation: The Curious Case of Curious George. <laughs> 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 and I'm going to be talking oh, today with you, Adam, about Curious George. No, no, you have to, I don't want to hear any ifs or, like, I, you need to stay in your seat. You need to, you need to hold on tight because at first I thought I'm going to bullshit my way through this, right? Everyone's favorite lovable impish monkey. But I'm actually going to be talking a lot about the Second World War. I'm going to be talking about exile. I'm going to be talking about um, kind of trauma, intergenerational trauma, and how a lot of, um, children's book writers have actually tried their best to draw from their own experiences and paint a beautiful world for um can i just ask then mm-hmm. out of curiosity i guess uh, uh, george about curious george actually <laughs> yeah because something inside me says that this is a rudyard kipling-esque Okay. Sort I will of be talking. I will be talking narrative, about if that mm-hmm. makes sense, because obviously mm-hmm. you know Richard Kipling wrote, I believe, the Jungle Book. <laughs> did he write? He didn't write Tarzan, but he did write Treasure Island. No, that was Robert Louis Stevenson. That was Robert <laughs> Different <Louis>. guy. <laughs> did Richard Kipling? Did Richard Kipling write anything else? Or was I, I he wrote. Know. If you might, you might have heard this poem. It's called "The White Man's Burden." Yes, obviously he was a massive racist. That that's a given, right? I'd like to say that all of these children children's writers were either massive racist Nazis or anti Semites, right? Not uh, uh, well. You'd be surprised. Um, let me tell you about the authors of Curious George. But, but I am curious. I see what you're getting at. Is that is it? Is it? Are we sort of thematically in the same area of this kind of late colonialism, early World War Two? sort of authorship period i'm gonna say paradoxically yes and no and and you're gonna find out why because nowadays curious george is experiencing a little bit of a little bit of like a little bit of kind of revisiting a little bit of ruinism in terms of the kind of colonial um undertones of the of the tale and i've read uh the seven original uh adventures of curious Mm. george i'm gonna be talking about uh about one of them um, there, there have definitely been those claims. However, I'm also going to, I'm going to also say, I'm going to try to save Curious, um, in, in a kind of way. I'm going to acknowledge it's, I'm going to acknowledge it's problematic tendencies, but I'm also going to kind of give you the history and say that it does come from two writers that experience, like, kind of the worst of the brunt of the, okay? So, <laughs> for all of our listeners who are, um, listening, hopefully you have some kind of, uh, knowledge of 
Curious George, right? Maybe you can picture it in your head. The cover is usually yellow. It is this cute little uh, kind of anthropomorphized monkey. He goes around in this city and he kind of goes on his little adventures. Um, his human companion, as it were, his human owner um, is the man with the yellow hat. I'm going to be talking a little bit later about the, the man's appearance. Um, and that's the kind of premise, right? He is brought from the jungles of Africa to this kind of uh, European slash American um, city, like mid 20th century city, and he is brought to live in a zoo. He constantly escapes the zoo, and he goes. That's the premise. Okay. Origins. So it was written by um, this couple, um, Hans Augusto Ray, or maybe Rye, R E Y, and um, Margaret Rye. I'm gonna call them Rye. Uh, they were both uh, German Jews. Um, they met in Hamburg at Margaret's um, 18th birthday party, and then they kind of went their separate ways. And then they later met in Brazil when Hans was a bathtub salesman and uh, Margaret was there escaping the rise of Nazism in their home. Wow. Yeah. So Margaret, um, her... She comes from quite a um, illustrious background. So her father was part of the Reichstag. Um, he was this very, very famous uh, politician. And Margaret actually studied art at um, the Bauhaus. Um, and, and she worked in marketing and advertisement. So she was, she was very, very um, good at telling stories and good at art as well. So the two of them ended up getting married in 1935. And then they moved to Paris. Um, they settled in Montmartre. And uh, they lived there until um, the invasion by the Nazis, where in 1940, they fled Paris. Okay, get this. They fled on self-made bicycles. So basically, Hans was <laughs> like, these soldiers are coming. He made bicycles for himself and his wife. And then the two of them uh, carried the initial manuscript of Curious George. Wow. And the two of them rode on their little bicycles and then fled fled France. Or fled Paris, rather. Which I think is... They went from Paris to Bayonne in, in France. And then they went to Spain. And then they went to Portugal. Then they went to Brazil. And then they settled in New York. So this was a very, very tumultuous time, right? And so that that's kind of not when Curious George really... Um, really really became popular right because these two authors they were experiencing the brunt of the war um and curious george was, uh, was originally featured in this work by by these two authors called cecily g and the nine monkeys and this was published in france um back when the, when the young couple um they were mm. still and it features the giraffe and a group of monkeys and one of the monkeys was kiss george and this one little monkey was so adored by the children uh, by the children audience that the publishers were like, I want you to write a number of books just for this little monkey. <laughs> it was only in New York, um, kind of when the war settled down and, and you know, this couple, um, as it were, that they, um, that, they, that they published their seven original adventures. Okay, let me take you through these seven texts and then I will go in one of them. Okay, the first one is aptly titled George. And that was published in 1941, right? Still during. The second one was called Curious George Takes a Job. That was in 1947, so, uh, six years later. And the third one, Curious George Rides a Bike, 1952. Uh, number four, Curious George Gets a Medal, 1957. Uh, number five, Curious George Flies a Kite, 1958. Curious George <laughs> Learning the Alphabet, 
1963, Curious George Goes to the Hospital, that's the last book written by um, these authors uh, during, during their lifetimes, um, 96. So you can kind of see that the two of them, they get a lot of acclaim from, from this, and they can kind of just continue working. So Hans, he ends up um, dying from a heart attack, in and then Margaret ends up becoming a uh, writing and uh, continues to work on she ends up founding a foundation george foundation which um provided money for creative children in the humanities uh-huh. um, as well as animal welfare that's really sweet um, and then she passed away in 1990 very recent right you were you were yeah. born in 1997 i was born in 1998 so you know this may be relevant early only now. two decades ago yeah two and a half decades ago okay fun fact do you know that if you look at some of the original editions of Especially the first book, you will only see Han's name, H A Rye, on the cover. Okay. So, despite the fact that Hans was in Margaret for the stories, Margaret actually wasn't credited on um, the uh, book covers for for a number of years. The reason for that was their publisher was like, there are too many, there are too many female children's book writers inundating the market, and so we actually want to feature um, a male writer instead. Wow, that's yeah, that's it, that's some kind of reverse inclusivity right there. That is, male men dominate every other industry, but this one industry that women dominate, we need to increase the diversity of men in it. Exactly, which is like totally messed up because you know they've done interviews and there's been plenty of reasons to show that like both of them um, through the early collaborated on every aspect of the sure. of the book, right? And so eventually her name was it. Um, and, and another fun fact, did you know that in the UK, when Curious George first came out in the 1940s, he was originally called Zozo. And wow. do you know why? Do you know why he was originally called Zozo? It's got some serious imperialist tendencies underneath yes, it, it does. Zozo. But, but that's, that's <laughs> there's, sort of, there's sort of a more like uh, positive, maybe not positive, but like more of a respectful kind of reason um, as to why they changed it's not something to do with the fact that there was a King George at the time and they used to call him Curious George or something, is it? <laughs> well, I, I don't know about his nickname, but um, yeah, they actually changed the name to avoid an association um, with... They were it, would like, be, well, it would be dreadful for, for a king to be associated with a monkey. With a curious, impish little monkey, right? From, from the <laughs> darkest jungles of Africa. Oof. There you go. Okay, now I want to kind of go in I want to go into the first book, Curious George, 91. I want to talk a little bit about the appearance of the man with the hat. So in the original series, this human wrangler um, of, of George never has a name. So I'm just going to call him the man. Um, his clothing, do, you, do can you kind of see it in your mind's eye? What, what the... I'm, I'm thinking he has sort of, I'll start from the head. He has... Mm-hmm. A wow. plinth hat, a white yes. plinth hat, which is similar to the black plinth hats that police officers wear in the UK. I'm thinking he's wearing some kind of tan or like cream, beigey, like button shirt with two pockets, one on each breast. I'm thinking that he has some kind of, I don't know how to describe the pants, but you know the pants that go into the boots and have the like slight like crease falling out of them. And then he has those boots on, which may be black or may even be white as well. Okay, well, I'm going to call you kind of an idiot because his name is the man with the yellow hat. and You began your description with a white hat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
So I'm definitely gonna I'm gonna deduct points on that. Everything else, you were also wrong, um, but I'm definitely gonna deduct points on the hat. I just that was kind of obvious. Hold on, hold on. Um, okay. Have you seen Jumanji? I have seen Jumanji, and it is it is no. in. The, you know, you know the the like guy with the blunderbust in Jumanji. Okay, this is that was the guy oh. I was thinking of. And the man with the yellow hat in the original illustrations actually does have a blunder, um, but obviously he has that the yellow hat, right? The signature yellow hat. Um, sure. He has sort of this very I can only call it in the style of Cecil Rhodes, <laughs> like in a true kind of like that is the you, image I had. Yeah, this is the image. This is the image I had, and then it was confirmed when I when I read the book. Um, but you know, he even has the gun, which you know I I was first experience I was first um, introduced to Curious George from the television series. Obviously, they did not depi- uh, depict a gun, but. Yes. So it was, it, it began with George, right? Um, and the little monkey is kind of napping in the tree. And then the man with the yellow hat sees George and he's like, I'm going to kidnap this dude and I'm going to take him to the zoo. So what he does <laughs> is he takes his yellow hat, he puts it on the ground. And then George being a very curious monkey is like, I'm going to like play around. And the moment George comes down from the tree, the yellow, the, the man with the yellow hat grabs him and stuffs him in this bag and then takes him onto a ship. And is like, George, you have to be a good little monkey now, but I'm going to take you to a zoo where you can be with, like, your fellow animals. As if, like, he wasn't with his fellow animals back in his home jungle. I don't know. <laughs> and he's like, you're going you're gonna to see the sights of the city. So George go, you know, he's a very mischievous little monkey. And he, he, he jumps off the boat. Um, they rescue him, right? He gets to the city. He gets set and he gets thrown in jail because um, he he accidentally called the firefighters and then they all rushed over and they were like, "Hang on, you can't prank call the emergency services. We're gonna throw you in jail." <laughs> and then he escapes jail. He gets whisked away by you know this this kind of uh, collection of balloons and then he ends up being found by the man with the yellow hat and then they, and then the book ends with being like very very happy. He's surrounded by like all of these African animals, right? There's like lions and elephants and giraffes. Um, and it's it's George there, kind of like king of the jungle on his little tree. And he's all happy with his red balloon. And I think you can kind of get, right, how nowadays um, this kind of storyline of this happy little monkey living in yeah. Africa, uh, living in the jungles of Africa, uh, getting kidnapped by this white colonial man with a gun and being like, sent to this european zoo it's a very it's a very he suddenly learns to accept and be grateful about how you know happy his his transportation was but the Um, the the authorship is the unusual bit for me um mm -hmm. did you say these are russian jewish authors right they're german jew they're german jewish authors okay i mean i i I don't know i i i I would like i said obviously at the start I felt like Curious George was Rudyard Kipling-esque. Not necessarily him himself, but I was expecting you to say he was developed by a British officer who served in Egypt or or North Africa during the, you know, during the blah, blah, blah war and then decided to write a story about about a monkey that was transported to the Americas and blah, 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 blah. Well, this is the thing. You would think so, right? 
it's but not... if anything, wouldn't you kind of agree that the authors, with their really like exiled over the course of a decade because war, they're kind of more like George, right? Where like George is transported from like jungle to boat, you know, boat to hotel, hotel to jail, jail to yeah. like other parts of the city via you know balloon and then right. Um, it kind of just reminded me of the way that the authors were, you know, bounced around from place to place as, like, their homes were constantly being invaded by groups of people that wanted to kill them. Um, and, and they had to end up settling, you know, halfway across the world, right? I wonder if I may be cynical for a second, whether or not this is more indicative of trying to fit in with the writing style of the time rather than indicative of deep-seated political beliefs within the authors themselves not that not that i'm even trying to ascribe necessarily political beliefs i think there's definitely undertones there whether they're intentional or unintentional i don't know but it does feel to me like this is a narrative designed to be in that era right yeah. so you think about like roald dahl's books you think about um well, even Dr. Seuss, right? You mm -hmm. think about, help me out here, um, I'm thinking of someone else, Roald Dahl, Dr. Seuss. But Who's I mean, that? even like the Paddington series, right? Or like sure. the Bear. The yeah. Paddington series or Winnie the Pooh, you know, yeah. these sort of things that are, again, you know, very neo-colonial and very British colonial, yeah. right? You know, you think about like, obviously, Winnie the Pooh, for example. Winnie the Pooh was inspired by a black bear brought over by Canadian soldiers to Britain during World War Two. Um, World War One, I, I think. Was it? Oh, sorry, no, it was. Yes, it was earlier. World War One. Yeah, it was a bit earlier than that. Yeah, you're right. But ultimately, whatever, there's still that colonial undertones to it, yo. Know? And whether or not, yo, know, it was necessarily harmful colonial undertones doesn't hugely matter. What I'm trying to say is, is that. They all feel like pr products of colonial sentiments. Yeah, and definitely this kind of exoticism, right? I mean, yeah. they, you know, this kind of idea of George being from the jungles of just Africa, right? Like, they kind of didn't bother, yeah. bother to assign it to me or, you know, whatever. It made me think a lot about Paddington. And, you know, famously, Paddington is from the darkest Peru, right? That's kind of the yeah. saying. What's really interesting, I think, about the distinction, right? Now, reading the first um, book of the Curious George series is that with Paddington, he is this very anthropomorphic there right like like paddington um kind of talks and thinks and he makes little marmalade sandwiches that he hides in his hat and like he has a little outfit on and he actually like rides a boat from to paddington station right to the uk to britain um where he's ultimately adopted by the browns um but it's kind of like paddington of his own volition wanting to go on a little adventure and tell his yeah. family about it whereas george george doesn't speak right george is george is like a monkey more monkey than human right and he was really just chilling and having a good time until he was ultimately kidnapped. And, like, there's this scene in the book where, like, the man with the yellow hat kind of just stuffs him in this bag. <laughs> He's like, you're going to live in a zoo now. Um, it just, I don't know. It, I, what, what I want to get to next, and this is what I'm going to end with, is how there are a number of authors from this time period um, who, like, basically both explicitly, like, omit any mentions of um, but at the same time, you can kind of see they, they can't really avoid it, right? Or, or if anything, they're trying a little too hard to. I'm going to provide one more example. Have you heard of Eric Carl? Remind. Have you heard of Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You Eat? Or have you heard of The Very Hungry Caterpillar? I've heard of The Very Hungry Caterpillar. I haven't heard of Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? Okay, so Eric Carl...
Carl, um, he was born in New York, actually, in 1909. Um, but when he was six years old, his mother was really homesick for me, and actually, um, the family went back to whoops, very, very wrong time to move back to Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, the father ended up, um, Eric's father ended up being drafted to the German army, um, and then taken as a prisoner of war by Soviet forces. And when the father came back in 1947, um, Eric Karl describes his father as being completely emaciated and basic dead man like his father was so traumatized by the war that like you know he was he was never the same man ever again um and carl uh, eric carl was also um conscripted at the age of 15 um where he was sent to the front lines and basically dug trenches and he remembers being this this very young boy and seeing like all of his friends just die around and and that's the kind of yeah. Sorry, did you say that his father came back in 1947? Mm -hmm. So what trenches was Eric Carl digging? No, no, no. But when he was 15, like so, as in, like he was also moved as well. Like he was also conscripted during the war itself. Oh, okay, I understand. Okay, yeah. carry on. And then, then after the war, yeah. Um, and he like Eric Carl throughout his life. Um, and I think he's still alive actually. Was 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 very open about his post traumatic stress disorder. Um, and then he. After the war, right, went, I think, back to New York and got into, like, advertising because he was a very, very talented graphic designer. Sure. And then he was reached out by this um, author, children's book author, um, Bill Martin, who was like, hang on, I think you should collaborate with Illustrate and write children's books because I think you have this very playful. Okay. And I'm going to read this um, quote by Carl because I think it summarizes really well, I think, Curious George's um, mentality as well. So Carl, Carl says, like, this is kind of like reason and his kind of um, background in terms of like the way he designs and, and writes. Uh, With many of my books, I attempt to bridge the gap between home and to me, home represents or should represent warmth, secure toys, being held. Um, I believe that the passage from home to school or like from the inside to the outside is the second biggest trauma of childhood. <laughs> the first, of course, is being born. Indeed, in both cases, you have a place of warmth and protection for one that um, the unknown often brings fear with. In my books, I try to counteract this and replace it with a positive. I believe that children are naturally eager to want to show them that learning. And so I think Carl, Carl also carries this kind of like an author who experienced, you know, firsthand just like the traumas of the Second World War. Um, and then in his books, has absolutely no mentions of, of like that kind of conflict at all, but yet still tries to use and, and um, explore with his very, very young readers um, this idea of being comfortable with leaving the warmth and, 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 and going to the outside and, and traveling like that. And I think you see that in right? This kind of curious. Sure, yeah, no. I, I think here, from my perspective at least, and obviously you're the English academic here, so mm -hmm. I won't put words in your mouth, I think there's definitely an entire you know, field of research waiting to be unlocked, or maybe it is even being explored now, on not only children's literature, but post-war, post-colonialism children's literature. Because yeah. I think that maybe we don't, you know, you don't hop on advertise it, uh, you don't hop on Amazon and see it advertised like this. But, you know, I, when I do, in my mind, categorise a whole group of literature... Yeah. by the fact that it was this sort of 1950s, 1960s, post... And I want to say here, I, when I say post-colonialism, I'm aware that, obviously, that colonialism continued well into the 1960s, even into the 1970s, and 
you know, if you think about, for example, Hong Kong, which was arguably the last British colony to be given back, all the way up until the 1990s, right? But the sort of end of that era, if you will, you know, when when empire was no longer, you know, necessarily a governance model, everyone knew it was on its way out. But I think there is definitely a really interesting field here as to how predominantly male authors, although I think Curious George is really interesting in being an exception to that rule rather than the rule itself, who also have some degree of military background, right? Yes, this is the so, very interesting. Yes, a lot of these. And I mean, again, think about Curious George is well. the exception to that as well. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. But you think about Roald Dahl, who famously, obviously, fought in Egypt. You think about uh, Rudyard Kipling, who was obviously, you know... Um, um, uh, yeah, again, I know he's a massive, like, racist. I'm pretty sure he's an anti-Semite. But he also fought in... I want to say World War One and maybe even before that, right? I think the Boer War. It might have been maybe the Boer War. Yeah, I don't know. But, earlier, something sick. Yeah. But what I want to say is, is uh, what I'm trying to say is more than anything is, you know, you've got these predominantly white male men who, white male men, <laughs> bit of an oxymoron there, so you've got these predominant white males who have served typically very illustrious military careers as well. You know, these aren't, we're not talking about like, frontline soldiers right we're talking about like officers we're talking about not even necessarily aristocrats right they're they're still from working class or middle class backgrounds they haven't necessarily they weren't bored born baron so-and-so or something but they mm-hmm. they sort of were educated enough to make it into like officerships and stuff like this right who have then gone on to create children's literature and for good or for bad you know seminal and iconic children's literature as well so i think there's definitely a really interesting field of research here i i think also um you know i i think i kind of interrupted a bit but i want to also reiterate not just the british examples but like french as well right the little prince um le petit prince uh written by uh, antoine de saint-exupéry who is like also a pilot right and like the little prince the premise of it is this pilot that is crash lands in i think sahara right and sure. the prince, right um, and also like the way that Sandy Berry like design crash, like ugh, there it is. Um, life imitates art. But yeah, I completely agree. Like I, I, I'd be really interested in research to do with this kind of military background of of of, of um, soldiers turned children's book. Um, well, it's counterintuitive as yeah. well if you think about it, right? Because if you think about the embodiment of the kind of men who came back from World War One and World War Two, and I, I I think I may be drawing more on stereotype here than maybe any empirical evidence of this. But I don't think of someone who is sensitive to children's like, you know, like emotions and feelings and the kind of things that would appeal to them as children. Do you know do you know what I'm trying to say that? They don't they don't seem like prime candidates to go, well what shall I do now? I'll become a children's author. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I, I would obviously point out that, obviously, strictly speaking, a lot of these people didn't actually only do children's authorship. You know, I think a lot of these people were like polyglots. Uh, polyglot? Poly, yeah, polyglot, right? You know, they, polymaths. Uh, polymaths, yeah. You know, you think about, like, again, Roald Dahl, he was obviously, for a period of time, the diplomat to Washington. He was, for a period of time, an inventor. 
He famously invented a heart valve that was used for like 20 years in heart surgery. He was, you know, he was a very accomplished man, regardless of, you know, whether or not you agree with his political views or anything like that. He was very well acclaimed for his time, right? But I think also it's about like, there's something about children's literature where you have to really keep the sentences. You have to keep the prose very simple. You have to keep the imagery and the ideas normally very like, pretty pretty simple right you have to keep it playful yeah. you have to keep it attractive to children yeah. i mean eric carl his stuff is honestly designated i think to children who are about you know five maybe three to five old it's not even like curious george or road doll i would say road doll stuff is probably for um kids who are between what like eight or eight or twelve or something like that right? sure, like a yeah. little older a little older audiences but like eric carl stuff right like brown bear brown bear what do you see it's the premise is literally yeah. like Brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? I see a red bird looking at me. Red bird, red bird, what do you see? It, like, that's the kind of premise of this book, right? Yeah. It's more pictures than words, yeah. right? And yet, like, what kind of is driving Carl and what is driving, you know, um, Hans and Margaret in their kind of pursuit to write this kind of, like, quote-unquote, play, you know, juvenile fiction is this idea of communicating, I think, like, really complex ideas to, um, yeah. you know, transportation, movement, diaspora like exile um what it means to be like unwillingly moved from your home right what it means to um deal with like foreign bodies and being in a, like a new space that you're completely unfamiliar with but but keeping like this very mischievous um kind of attitude and and always being on the look for adventure there's something very i don't know maybe positive maybe too positive about that then i mean thinking about that as well i think because obviously the two authors in this particular case were victims, essentially, of, you know, white supremacy, Nazi imperialism, all of these things, right? You know, I think, from the sounds of it, Curious George doesn't sort of strongly condemn that kind of impact on his life, right, on, on this lead character of Curious George's life, right? He doesn't go, you know, Curious George is irreparably emotionally damaged from this experience. He was right? curious no more. He in fact, curious. he becomes in fact he becomes more curious, yeah. right? And I think that you know, it would be very simple to say, oh, well, obviously you can't write a good children's book like that. But perhaps more and I'm thinking about this maybe more from a personal perspective when I talk when I think about sort of like when I write and when I do creative works around the kind of traumas and experiences that I've had um, from my identity, you know, being someone that does suffer from like long-term health conditions, stuff like that, that it's not easy to simply condemn something that you've experienced yourself when it's not, although you would never have wished for it, it's not been entirely negative, right? Yeah. I think, you know, it's very easy to portray this in a very black and white scenario, right? And that was a horrible choice of words. I don't mean it like that, right? But I think, you know, obviously them being victims themselves of this kind of, like, you know, forced to flee, for you know, forced to go somewhere against their will, right? It's hard for them to then write a novel that then condemns that when, you know, they've perhaps not necessarily desired it, not desired it at all, but have experience net benefits as well from having experience and having lived through that experience right um and i think that's a very relatable sentiment for me. and i think also you know i've been i've been kind of reading some articles right especially because you know 
we are recording in the pandemic and you know thank god i think it's getting over right it's definitely projected to you know come out on a very positive note um in in the short in the short kind of uh um in Ontario, things are getting worse. I think it's like, there's been a lot of articles on like, to what extent can you have these kinds of conversations with children, right? Like, to what extent, like, what is it like to tell children that 3 million people have like, died from these, right? Or that yeah. like, they won't be able to see their friends for a long time, or, you know, they might not be able to see their grandparents anymore, um, ever, right? Yeah. Or, um, you know, like, family friends might pass away very young and, um, it's for like forces it's due to forces completely outside of their control right like these are like really hard-hitting questions um and definitely right when this was being written right 1941 when that's when curious george was published this was still during the war and this was published in new york right so this is when america was like you know when was pearl harbor that was 1931 right something like incredibly within that time period right when the u.s was like formally entering the um the war it's it's kind of like this idea of of comforting children but also telling children like these are the facts or like this is this is something that happens and like you have the capacity not only deal with it but also to still be like very happy and be very curious right like there's sure. a reason why george has that appetite right to be curious right and to always like get his little in trouble right it's like maybe, maybe i'm defending it a little too much but i, I always like to see like i always try <laughs> like to try to rescue like children's authors and stuff like that especially people <laughs> who have especially people who have like experienced like um war on a very personal note right and and you know definitely lost a lot of their family and and friends from sure yeah. anyways that that more or less concludes my presentation uh the curious case of curious george that was um i, I think that was very interesting i think like i say i think there's a lot of huge research topics right there right what what does war what does colonialism say about 20th century children's literature what does the individuals and their relationship to those kind of themes say about children's literature you know i think the 20th century will ultimately be defined by and i say defined by because i i don't think it's fair to say that we can define what the 20th century will be defined by right now. I think that's something yeah. that will be defined in two or three or four hundred years' time when you can look back on the 20th century with a cl- true clinical like analysis where not only is it gone from living memory, but it's that living memory is gone from living memory, if that makes sense. But I think it will be defined particularly by two significant events, obviously. The first being world war Two, and the second and and i do preclude world war one here um i realized that world war one was a massive colonial effort here or but also by the cold war right i think the cold war will be the other really significant sort of event that historians look back on and really say this shaped the way humanity led their life for a significant portion of time right and i think it's really interesting to then look at that and start to see those tones emerge even now right and like i said i i think it's too early to draw those conclusions but i do think it is interesting how there are these very influential writers who all seem to have a very close tied relationship to the effects of either colonialism or the war or both and also i mean baby boomers right if you're gonna think about children's literature in the 60s right like that's when a huge number of children we do have this of children who are uh, whose parents were very very much affected by something um cataclysmically tragic right yeah 
Wonderful. Well, I think now I need to award you a degree, don't I? <laughs> what the? Really? I I think I'm gonna I think I think I'm gonna award you a degree. Yes. Um, I'm not sure where I'm gonna award. You <laughs> Is this what you were looking at, I, listeners? While I was talking, I could see Adam was like kind of just like on his computer. <laughs> I could see he was scrolling around, and I was like, "What's this boy doing?" I am going to award you a degree from. Hold on. I can't tell if he's really drunk or if he's just very unprepared. I think it's a combination of the two. I'm very unprepared. I'm going to award you a degree from Cardiff Metropolitan University. Wow! Come? In. (laughs) No. (laughs) The Cardiff University of Metropolitan. (laughs) Yeah. Um, In in children's literature in neocolonialism. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you. Okay. And... So that sort of brings this episode of our podcast to a close with only one small thing left on the agenda, which is, of course, what will be my word for next week. All right. So my word this week, Georgian. And Adam, for your topic, I'm going to assign you the word high def. Okay. So two words. Well, it's, it's, no, it's not. It's high def, but with a hyphen in between. So it's one word. And um, that's gonna be that's gonna be your word. I'm really excited to hear what kind of research you're gonna come up with. Well, I've got a week to think about that, so I will go away, do some research, and get back to you. Yep. Anyway, in the meantime, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Mm-hmm. We hope you'll tune in next week. We hope you will check out our uh, social media: Twitter at Livin Viva, Facebook at um, Livin La Viva Voce. And we'll be hitting you next week with another Viva Voce. Thank you for tuning in. I've been Adam. I've been Meg. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.